So the book of Hebrews then, written to a group of believers who faced many challenges of heart and mind. In the midst of difficulties and sorrow and suffering, they are called to fix their eyes upon Jesus and therefore persevere. They are called to direct their hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. And this is just tremendously encouraging for me because I don't think I could be a Christian if it was a utopian religion. I don't think I could walk with Christ if I was always meant to be happy. Our vision as a church is thy kingdom come. We want to see a glimpse of heaven and earth as we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus come and transform us and transform our church and transform our city and our culture and our world all to his glory. And all embedded in that vision is the recognition and reality that us and our church and our city and our culture and our world are not what there ought to be. Yes, there are many good things in all of them, but there is much that is broken. We think of ourselves, our physical health, our emotional health, our relational and spiritual health. We think of our church and just browse the flock notes, and we read of suffering and of surgeries, of family tension, of busyness, of stress. We read of Mike Rowe, who goes from one health issue to another and perseveres with great faithfulness to the Lord. Praise the Lord for Mike Jean and their family. But things aren't as they are meant to be. We look at our city, we see the idolatries of power, the idolatries of influence, and the rest. We look at our culture and the increasing marginalization of the gospel as secularism continues to creep. We look at our world and the headlines are always bad. They're always bad. It's not encouraging to check your newsfeed. We read of famine and of warfare and of poverty. Yes, there is much in our world that is good, but in a world like ours, we need a game plan for how we're going to deal with hardship and with suffering. In a world like ours, we need a plan for how we're going to endure when the trouble comes. If life is going well for you this morning, I want to encourage you that this sermon is for you. God wants you to be ready and prepared for the challenges of life. He is not surprised by anything that awaits you in your future, and he has given you himself and all the resources of the gospel to uh, strengthen you for the road that is marked ahead. Uh, But if you are happy, then I want to encourage you that the best time to prepare is now. The time to get your theology right and your ducks in a row is not when the trouble comes. When you have the miscarriage or when you get the diagnosis, that is not the time to start musing upon God's sovereignty and his control over your life. You need a bedrock, a foundation that is in place before the trouble comes. If you are in the midst of struggling, uh, struggle or, or, or suffering right now, I really want you to understand that as a, as a pastor and a preacher, I sit in my office and I think about our people. There is a precious relationship between pastor and people. This is not a game to me. I am not standing up to say some true things. I've thought about many of you by name and prayed for you as I prepared this and hope that this is not going to be a time for us to present ourselves with intellectually satisfying but emotionally shallow answers. My hope and prayer for myself and for you is that we'll carve out this time that we will meet with the Lord, that we will feel his smile upon us and that we will feel strengthened for the hardships that we're currently going through ourselves.
In either case, this will not be the final word on hardship and suffering. Rather, we're just going to glean what we can from this passage together. Three things that we're going to do together. First, I want to place this passage in its wider biblical context. Secondly, I want to work through how we should think about hardship and suffering. And then thirdly, how we should act in hardship and suffering. So the wider biblical context, how we should think in hardship and suffering, and how we should act in hardship and suffering. Let's dive in together then. By thinking about the wider biblical context when it comes to hardship and suffering. And for the Christian, there are really two perspectives, at least two perspectives, that we need to keep in mind as we work our way through this passage. And these perspectives are summarized by the shortest verses in the New Testament. So first perspective, what's the shortest verse? Someone tell me. Jesus wept. Okay, shortest verse in the English New Testament, Jesus wept. When we think of hardship and suffering, as Christians, we are very cognizant of the fact that suffering is real and pain is real. And Jesus did not stand at the grave of his friend and say, praise the Lord. He's in control. Let's rejoice. No, he stood there and he wept. And tears fell from his eyes and dropped to the ground as he grieved in sorrow. As Christians, we weep because our world is not the way that it's meant to be. It's not the way that it's meant to be. And we see this again and again, not just at Lazarus' tomb, but again and again in the life of Jesus. We see him angry because things aren't the way they're meant to be. Are you ready for a quote? If I said this, I'd get in trouble, but this is from Jesus. <laughs> Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you find him, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. I'd get my coat if I said that. (laughs) Jesus, Matthew 23, verse 15. Angry because things are not the way they're meant to be. We see him frustrated in Matthew 17, 17. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you. We see him in full wrath as he clears the temple. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. We see Jesus weep. We see him angry. We see him frustrated. We see him in wrath. Why? Because as we think about hardship and suffering, we recognize that this world is not the way it's meant to be. Apply this to ourselves. When God created the world, there was no loneliness. And so when you're alone and when you're isolated, it's okay to grieve and say, this is not the way it's meant to be. When God created the world, there was no miscarriage. And so when you lose a little one, it's okay to grieve and say, this is not the way it's meant to be. When God created the world, there was no divorce. And so when you feel regret or the pang of betrayal, it's okay to grieve and say, this is not the way it's meant to be. When God created the world, there was no cancer. So when you get that diagnosis, it's okay to grieve and say, this is not the way it's meant to be. When God created the world, there was no fear. And so when it rises within you and you feel controlled by it, it's okay to grieve and say, this is not the way it's meant to be. very shallow form of Christianity that would say to you, just praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Be happy. Cheer up. Have a bit more faith, and you'll be okay. God created a world that was perfect in every way, and sin has marred it, 
not beyond recognition. There is redemption for us. But sin has marred it and affected it deeply. And our sufferings and our sorrows are the result of sin's destructive effect in our world. Now understand very clearly, your sufferings are not necessarily the one-to-one result of your sin. You did something wrong, God gave you cancer. God is not karmic in that way. God is gracious and loves us and uh, is, is never active in a punitive sense because of Jesus. But all suffering and all brokenness is the result of sin generally, and yes, uh, we do uh, contribute to that personally. So, first perspective on suffering. That we weep because it's not the way it's meant to be. The second perspective, interestingly, from the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the English Bible, but it's not the shortest verse in the Greek Bible. And it's interesting because there's such a comparison. The shortest verse in the Greek Bible is, be joyful always. Be joyful always. Very far from Jesus wept. Why can we be joyful always? Not in a shallow way, like I was referencing before, but because God really does work all things together for good. Now, right now, I need the Spirit to pour His love into my heart, so I'll believe that. Because I understand it. I need to believe it. That God does work all things together for good. Again, we see this in the life of Jesus more than in the life of any other. He used the betrayal of friends and the lies of religious leaders and the injustice of the political regime to bring about the most heinous crime in the history of the world as Jesus was nailed to the cross. And what did God do with that? He used that for the salvation of our souls ruled and overruled the true evil and true uh, suffering of those events uh, to work them for good, for our good and the grace that is ours and because of it. So this is how God works. He takes these things that were never meant to be and then he works them for our good. And so it's possible to rejoice even in the midst of our suffering because we know that someday, somehow, God is ruling and overruling to make sure that these things work for are good. This is a hard teaching. This is not Gospel 101. To believe this in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your suffering, it's hard to do, and I pray for the grace to believe it. But that's the wider context. It's okay to grieve, and it's possible to be joyful. This is not the way it's meant to be, and God is ruling and overruling to work all things together for But how then should we think about hardship and suffering? We get an answer to this question. This passage teaches us how we should think about hardship and suffering. We really get a summary in verse 7 where we read, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And the NIV translates it perhaps more helpfully in this one instance, endure hardship as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. So think about your suffering and your hardship as parental discipline. Not as something that God is divorced from or that some God is somehow absent from, but God is here and he is active as a loving father. This is a hard truth. Let's work through it in the text, starting in verse 4 and 5. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have not yet been martyred. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
Don't be surprised when hard things come into your life as though something strange were happening to you. Hardship and suffering is not an aberration. God is at work in them, turning them for good as an act of parental discipline. Why? Verses 6 through 8 answer. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. To love your children well, we all know this, to love your children well, you've got to discipline them. When they snatch or fight or lie or do all the things that we all do, you need to go down to their level. You need to engage them in their world. You need to speak to them about that. You need to enforce discipline as an act of love. To love your children well, you must discipline them. Failure to do so is generally because we're making it about us. It looks like a couple different things. Sometimes it looks like laziness. I'm on the couch. I'm watching the game. I hear them fighting in the basement, and I just can't be bothered going and doing anything about it. Right? I'm sure I'm the only parent who's ever done that. <laughs> Sometimes it has a different face. You really want your kids to like you and be pleased with you, and so you're afraid to discipline them. When the reality is, you're not your children's friend. You're their parent, and they need you to love them well by disciplining them. Um, discipline is, is an aspect of love. Discipline is an aspect of love, and God loves us, and he loves us well, and so he disciplines us. Let's continue, verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. We're getting into the meat of this now. He disciplines us for good, that we might share in his holiness. In other words, God's discipline is not punitive. It is not punishment. When we think of discipline, it tends to be, you did this wrong, so go to the headmaster. It's not punishment. It's for our flourishing. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then you believe that Jesus Christ has taken all the punishment you are ever owed for deeds done past, present, or future. And that is one of the glorious things about the gospel. If you are fearful of the things you have done, if you feel guilty about them, you can come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now. Receive forgiveness for him, from him. Know that he has taken upon himself all the punishment you are ever due. There is no more punishment left. God has no more wrath left for your sin if you are in Christ. And so his discipline is not designed to punish, but for you to flourish. You ready for a great bit of Greek? Greek is rarely exciting, but you're about to get some exciting Greek. You ready? Brace yourselves. This is great. The Greek term discipline is where we get our term pediatrics. Let that sink in a little bit. Doesn't that change how you think about this text? Doesn't that change how you think about this text? God is not disciplining you because he disapproves of you and he needs to somehow get those last bits of frustration out. 
He is disciplining you for your flourishing. He is coming as a pediatrician to minister to you and give you the medicine and even the surgery that you need for your life and for your soul's flourishing. See, I think this is hard for us to understand because as parents, we are always a mix of motives. So when I discipline my children, it's partly because I want them to flourish and it's partly because I'm angry with them, right? They've done something stupid and I yell at them, right? And then I discipline them. And so I'm kind of a mix of emotions. I never kind of am wholehearted in my discipline. But the Lord isn't that way. There's no more wrath for us. It is just for our flourishing. And he is at work. He is at work to uh, give us those medicines that we need to grow. Let's continue. Verse 11. Uh, Discipline, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Don't you love how obvious the Bible is? It's great. Um, Yes. If any of you have children who praise you in the middle of discipline, I want to know what your secret is. You know? I thank you for this time out, right? Um, Yeah, discipline's not fun. Discipline is uh, painful. And yet... End of verse 11. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline isn't fun at the time, but in the long run, we're grateful for it. God is at work to make us all that he has ever intended for us to be, and hardship and suffering is one of the means he uses to do that. One of the means he uses to do that. So that, in the long run, the dark clouds turn to showers of blessing and the bitter root becomes a beautiful flower and the mask of fear is mercy in disguise. God loves you enough to give you spiritual chemotherapy for your soul. So though you feel like you are dying, it will actually save you. That's the message of Hebrews 12. Our hardships and our sufferings are ruled and overruled by God so that he, as the great pediatrician, will work them for our flourishing. And he loves you enough to let them into your life. A couple of illustrations to try and work this uh, truth into our lives a little bit. Um, First of all, just the idea of physical training. I go to the gym, I jump on the treadmill, uh, I start to work out, and I feel pretty good. Um, then I work, keep, you know, run a little further and I feel a little less good. <laughs> and then near the end of my workout, I feel terrible. Terrible. And if you run, you'll know what I mean. But like, your heart and lungs, sometimes you feel like you're going to die. I'm going to have a heart attack right here at the Reston YMCA. Um, you feel like that. And what do you need to do when that happens? You need to keep going. You need to keep going. Because when you are weak, you get strong. When you're weak, you get strong. Your heart and your lungs grow in capacity and health in proportion to how much you test them. Or lifting weights. I don't lift weights, which I'm sure you're all very surprised to hear. (laughs) Um, If I did lift weights, um, or when I have lifted weights, Um, You know what it's like. You you lift and you start to feel the burn. And when you start to feel the burn, you need to keep on lifting. And if you're not feeling the burn, you're not doing anything. It drives me crazy when you see people at the gym and they're like walking on a treadmill or lifting like three pound weights. And I think, you should go home, you know? (laughs) You get more exercise 
walking to the fridge and back, right? Um, in order for your muscles to grow, they need to be broken down. And when you are weak, you get strong. When you're weak, you get strong. And so the Lord is not afraid to come into your life and say, I'm going to make you weak. And I'm not going to do it to punish you, but I'm going to burn off the shallow happiness of this world that you will fix your eyes on me and find the real and lasting joy and support that you need to make it through the difficulties of this life. Because you know what? When your wife dies, playing golf is not going to help. When you lose a child, your latest hobby will not see you through. When you get that diagnosis, your bank balance will come to naught. So I'm going to burn these things off you. I'm going to burn them off you in divine surgery so that you will have your hope solidly placed upon the one thing that won't disappoint you, which is me. Which is me. Physical training teaches us about fatherly discipline. And it's a good spiritual discipline. If you exercise, when you feel the burn, think of the Lord. It's good. It's good. Another illustration I was thinking about was not the idea of physical training, but more the idea of physical senses. So the Lord has given us the ability to see, and he uh, gives us many of his blessings through the gift of sight. And so I can enjoy the sunset, and I can enjoy a good movie, and I can enjoy looking at my wife over dinner, and I can enjoy uh, all the blessings that I receive because I can see. But he's sort of discontent with that. He's got more blessings to give than my sight has the capacity to receive. And so he gave me the gift of hearing too. And so I can hear my four-year-old laugh. And she chuckles with a full belly and is happy. And that just blesses me. I'm happier when I hear her laugh. I can listen to uh, music that I love. I can enjoy uh, a challenging, intimate, or relaxed conversation because God has given me the capacity to receive blessings that goes beyond my ability to see. And in the same way, the Lord gives us many blessings through our spiritual senses, the spiritual senses of joy. We can be with one another. We can receive fellowship. We can receive uh, the joy of worship. We can be with one another and celebrate and have these spiritual senses to receive his good gifts to us. But the Lord knows that to receive all of his blessings, we need more than the sense of joy. We need more than sight. We need hearing. And so he gives us the spiritual sense of suffering that we might receive from his hand those blessings that our joy cannot receive. And so in the moment of suffering, as we find those things burned off us, we find that we are grown and developed and tested and challenged and helped and aided in ways that we would never have been if all we could ever experience was joy. He is at work. It's hard, but it's for our good. Some applications of this idea. The applications come to us in verse 5. First of all, on one hand, this idea that we should endure 
uh, hardship and suffering as, as fatherly discipline frees us, verse 5, from stoicism. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I am not saying that you should be happy uh, about your unemployment or happy about your wayward child or happy about your spouse's pornography. I'm not saying you should be happy about these things because we, take, we don't take lightly the discipline of our Lord. Um, we can stop acting like everything's fine just because we've got Jesus. You know, the praise the Lord anyway kind of Christianity that is shallow. It's shallow because it's not real. It doesn't resonate with our darkest, deepest experiences. It's uh, that scene in Monty Python where the soldier gets his arm chopped off and he says, it is a mere flesh wound. Praise the Lord. When you do that, try this home a little more. When you do that, what you're really doing read one commentator say, is hardening your heart against the Lord in the same way that a child who refuses discipline does. See, saying praise the Lord sounds like the right thing to say, but what you're actually doing is you're you're hardening your heart in the way that a child who refuses discipline does. So I'll give you an example. My children all receive discipline differently. I have one child who I can make cry with a look, okay? And then I have another child who, when you say um, you can't have any ice cream, says, I don't want ice cream anyway, right? (laughs) Uh, and when you say, you're in time out, he says, I felt like a rest anyway, right? <laughs> he refuses the discipline of his father, <laughs> which becomes less and less for his flourishing by the moment. <laughs> you see, because he refuses my discipline, he's hardening his heart against me. Okay? And when we treat lightly the discipline of the Lord, we're hardening our heart against him. We're saying, Lord... There's nothing that can be brought into my circumstances that will move me. It's a form of stoicism that is not at the healthy relational root of our gospel. Our gospel says that we've been brought into relationship with God, and so just read the Psalms, okay? Read the Psalms and see how we should relate with our Father who loves us, who calls us to cry out and calls us to be depressed and calls us to be anxious and calls us to be angry because what we need is him and what he wants is us frees us from stoicism. Secondly, though, this idea that hardship and discipline should be endured as, as, as fatherly, uh, tender care that frees us from stoicism, but also frees us from despair. In the second half of verse B, uh, do, not be, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Nor be weary when reproved by him. So in your suffering and in your hardship, do not lose heart because the Lord is in it and he is for you. Do not think that your death of loved ones or the disease or the stress or the anxiety or the doubt or the fear or the loneliness or whatever it is that you're struggling with is somehow disconnected from him so that you are mere victim of circumstance and victim of a fallen world. No, we believe in a God who is sovereign and rules and overrules even these things that they might be turned for your good. And so we're not dismayed and we don't despair and we don't throw up our hands in some sort of anxious confusion when hardship happens to us because we know that he is here, that he is with us and that these things will turn for good. 
And I reflect upon this because, you know, you, you preach this message to a congregation and you look out and you see the faces and you know the struggles. And you look in and you see your heart and you know the struggles. How can this really be true? That when your child is dying, you cannot despair. How can this really be true when your spouse is dying? How can this really be true in your loneliness and grief? We need grace to believe these things are true and they're true for you in your suffering this day. And there is no alternative. He has the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? What am I going to say? You remember when we just arrived here and our four-year-old had seizures out of the blue one day? And I picked him up, his lifeless, breathless body, and prayed out loud, God, don't let him die. How do I explain that to my other children? How do, I, do I say to them, this is a terrible thing, it ought never have happened, God is not happy that this is happening, and uh, you know, he's, he, this is not from him. By implication, he is absent, or he is powerless, or he is removed from this? No, that's not what we say. We say, dear ones, the Lord is near, and the Lord is with you, and he is your God. And I would much rather that this were not happening, but I trust him with it, because I know that he is at work for my good, and for your good, and for the good of the brother who lies in the hospital now. We are not dismayed and we do not lose hope because we know that even in the midst of our hardship and of our suffering, the Lord is near and working as the pediatrician of our souls. Grace, Lord, grace to believe these things are true. How we should think in hardship and suffering, we should see the Lord is at work as a tender father discipline for our flourishing. How should we act in hardship and suffering? A few moments on this. Let me give you an internal discipline and an external discipline. First of all, internally from verses 2 and 3. We are the ones who look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Again and again and again, the writer of Hebrews says, in the midst of challenges, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Do not fix your eyes upon those things that are temporary and passing. Fix your eyes upon the only thing that is eternal and robust. Fix your eyes upon him. He is the one who endured the cross, verse 2. He is the one who understands your suffering. There is no sorrow, difficulty, hardship, or grief that you will go through in this life that he has not experienced first as your elder brother. He understands these pains. And so you can look to him. Not only does he understand, but he is the one who endured these things for the joy that was set before him. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Jesus, enthroned in heaven itself, had all the splendor of glory, except you. That's why he came to earth, and that's why he lived and died and rose again, to secure the joy that was set before him, to secure you and a relationship with you for all eternity to come. 
He isn't just the one who understands suffering. He is one who reaches out in love. And when you, verse 3, consider him, he is the one enthroned in heaven. Consider him. When you, what does this mean? It doesn't just mean think about Jesus. It's a spiritual discipline where you bring yourself, bring your true self into his presence in prayer and say, Lord, here I am. And here's my suffering and here's my brokenness. And here's my pains and my sorrows and my grief. And I'm bringing them to you as the only one who's been through them, as the only one who truly loves me, as the only one with the authority of heaven itself to act on my behalf. And just see See what happens to your griefs in the presence of Christ. It's a spiritual reality that I can't really convince you of. Try it. Try it. Bringing your soul into the presence of Christ and seeing what happens to your struggles in the glow of his love. The powerful internal spiritual discipline. Looking to Jesus. Secondly, some external things. We read in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. These verses are, called, are a call to practically live in such a way that will help, not hinder, the work that God's doing in your life. That's what it's talking about, by and lift your hands and strengthen your knees and make straight paths. Live in such a way that will help not hinder your spiritual growth, help not hinder uh, the work that God is doing within you. In other words, there are practical things you can do in the midst of hardship and suffering to smooth the path that's before you. I'm going to give you as many as we have time for. Starting with, number one, community. If you are in hardship and suffering, you need to be in community. You just need, you've got to be surrounded by other people. We are not, you hear me say it again and again, we are not spiritual mavericks, we are not spiritual lone rangers, we are not spiritual superheroes, we are not designed to live alone. We are designed to live in community. When you're going through a hardship or a struggle, there is amazing um, gospel power in sharing that with the community and finding that many others there have struggled with the same thing and survived and come out the other side great power in this kind of real relationship. So get connected with the Sunday school or attend one of our uh, Age Pacific uh, ministries or get in a small group. Find some people that you can be sharing your life with. I said more about that a few weeks ago, so I won't harp on that now. If you're in hardship and struggle, get in community. Secondly, if you're in hardship and struggle, sometimes you need to get some good counsel. There are issues in life that rise beyond you know, the help that maybe your small group can bring. And you have been blessed with a gift called the church, which is a spiritual network of relationships where we can come alongside each other and provide good counsel. Um, So, yeah, come and speak to our elders. Come and speak to our deacons or our board of women. Come and speak to one of our lay counselors. Great group of gifted people who have a heart and passion to come alongside those who are hurting and help them walk through these things. Come and speak to your pastors. It drives me crazy. Hear hear ye, hear ye. This drives me crazy. When people say, I was going to call you, but I know you're busy. What do you think we're here for? (laughs) You know? We're not kind of like running some church thing 
that doesn't include you. <laughs> that you are the church. And that's why we're here. So always, always come uh, and approach your pastors. We are thrilled to help however we can. Seeking this kind of counsel that will aid you in your struggles. Thirdly, in hardship and struggle, you need community, you need counsel, you need care. Uh, by this, I mean the kind of self-care that I spoke about when I preached on Hebrews 4 and rest. Um, we won't belabor it now, but you need to be eating right, sleeping right, and exercising right. You know what it's like when you're in grief or anxiety? You withdraw from things like food. You just don't have an appetite for them. You need to make your path straight by eating three square meals. Uh, what happens in your soul is affected by your body. It is good for you to carry on these sensible disciplines. Your body is designed to need sleep. When you're in grief or sorrow, it needs more sleep. Your body is designed to need exercise, and we all sit at desks all day. So uh, get out there and do these things. Lastly, uh, time is running out. When you're in the midst of hardship and struggles, you need community, counsel, care. I just realized in the first service that all those things began with C, because the fourth one doesn't. And I might have tried to think of something if I had. But um, Fourth one, um, this idea of what counselors call meaningful novelty. They kind of mean hobbies, but hobby implies that it's optional, and it's not really. In the midst of hardship, don't withdraw from doing things that are fun. So if your kids are misbehaving, here's, here's a plan. Go out to your favorite restaurant with your wife, and don't talk about the kids feeling stressed at work, come home, um, you know, not early, but on time, and play guitar. If you're in the midst of struggle and grief, engage in these things that help you remember the world is bigger than your struggle. Suffering and hardship can often be a very insular thing. We kind of withdraw to ourselves and aren't able to connect with the greater world around. And God has given us a full, free, vibrant world to engage with it that we might be drawn out of ourselves into his blessings for us. And so it sounds grossly unspiritual, but prayer is good and playing the guitar is good. Do both. Do both. The Lord has designed you to need it. Okay, folks, as believers in Jesus, we walk a road that is endlessly marked with suffering. It's okay for us to grieve, and it's possible for us to have joy. This is not the way it's meant to be, but God is working all these things together for good. We receive discipline uh, from his hand, recognizing that it is coming with a tender, fatherly, pediatric care, not for our punishment, but for are flourishing. We practice these internal disciplines of fixing our eyes upon Jesus, and we make our paths straight by living with practical wisdom. May the Lord give me and you the grace to believe these things are true right where you're sitting today.